Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. Today, I spoke with Noam Kurwitz. He is an engineer at Alchemy, which is kind of building the infrastructure in the Web3 world that you never really hear about. It's a lot of backend stuff. It's um, the backbone architecture of like nodes and other uh, systems that need to read the data on the internet or write data to the internet. But basically, they're kind of um, under the hood on a lot of stuff that we are talking about when we talk about NFTs or decentralized exchanges or um, any amount of decentralized apps. So they have a really um, great spot in the, in the ecosystem. And uh, Noam is leading a bunch of engineers there who are working on things like account abstraction, which we've talked about a couple times on this podcast about now it's a, a wallet and a user experience that's governed by a smart contract. So it's a lot more flexible uh, and it's a lot uh, more, it can evolve and, and like keep up with the technology as advances are made. Um, so we talked with Noam about uh, his time at Pomona College, um, how he loves Los Angeles. Uh, we talked about um, some good burgers in Venice Beach, where he worked uh, for Google for a while. Um, and we talked about, you know, what are some of the impediments to getting more people into crypto and getting them um, on chain. So with all that being said, uh, let's get to the conversation. Thanks, as always, for being here and for your support. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Noam, how you doing? I'm doing well, Matt. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is great. Uh, I've been excited to talk to you. I, I always like talking to folks at Alchemy. Um, I've known Nikhil and Joe, the co-founders there, for a long time. I've um, written many pieces about them, uh, especially back in the day when you guys were raising money, like hand over fist. I think uh, before the bear market, you guys were worth something like $70 trillion. Is that, I think I'm ballpark? Yeah, 75, I believe it was. Yeah, uh, 75 close. was the top. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I've read a lot of your writing and excited chat. I know you've also spoken with a few of my coworkers and a few of the teams that we work with. So uh, pretty wide, wide ranging coverage. Yeah. Yeah. I've always liked you guys because I think what you're doing is really smart. You know, you're building the infrastructure and the tools that people need to make Web3 a reality. And it's like, I always, so I covered exchanges at Bloomberg News for a long time. And I always thought if you could get something like that, like an exchange where everybody has to come and buy and sell and you don't really have to do anything. You just have to, you know, I mean, I shouldn't say that. It's like, it's not easy, but it's a great piece of infrastructure that's completely necessary. And if you can be the person that, you know, has that and makes money from it, it's a great, um, it's a great idea. It's the, you know, I think Joe or Nikhil, they always say the picks and shovels, right? Is what you guys want to uh, be providing. Yep, exactly. I was wondering maybe just to start, we we could just kind of keep on that topic of, of maybe you could explain for folks what it is that Alchemy does, because you guys are sort of behind the scenes, but you're helping to power, I mean, a huge majority of the NFT market and a lot of Web3 um, decentralized apps. And so maybe you could kind of give us a 30,000 foot view of what you guys are doing at Alchemy. Sure. So we're the leading Web3 developer platform. Um, we power a lot of the EVM ecosystem and have supported other environments like Solana and in the past environments like Flow. Um, you can think of Alchemy's three main focuses across three axes. So there's core node infrastructure, which is 
Uh, a node is a point on the blockchain network, which is how you access the network, get data from it, and send transactions to it. And doing that reliably and scalably so that the developers don't have to worry about this touch point in order to facilitate and build blockchain applications. It's like the backbone of it? Is that a That's way the of... backbone of everything, exactly. Yeah. That is the, okay. the blockchain infrastructure itself. On top of that, there's two main areas of focuses. So one is more along reading blockchain data. And we're seeing these blockchain systems get increasingly complex, split across multiple networks, supporting more advanced primitives like account abstraction, which we can talk about later. And the result of all of this is that it makes getting data from the blockchain much more difficult, and it makes building applications that can keep up with the data evolutions much more demanding. And so we're building out infrastructure that makes getting this data easier and simpler to build apps around, regardless of whether they're multi-chain or relying on complex primitives or even relying on off-chain data. So that we think about as like the read path. And then the third piece is the write path of how do you safely send and effectuate transactions to the Ethereum blockchain and other EVM blockchains, and in parallel, improve the user experience, which has been a notable point of conversation around some of the limitations of blockchains. Um, and so how do you provide a seamless UX with security and self-sovereignness and building out infrastructure that allows developers to build those types of user experiences? Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to get into that. The user um, experience, I think uh, that's really, uh, really important and interesting um, part of what you're doing at Alchemy. Um, as you were describing all of that, uh, it made me wonder if all of this stuff is too complex. Like, is it, in your opinion, too complicated or is that just the nature of how it's being built because it's sort of a distributed system and people from all over the world are working on it? Or... Did, uh, I mean, I, I don't think it's too complex, but I'm just curious, like by design, if you had to do it over, would you, would you make changes to the, the way that things are working today? Uh, that is a very big question. Um, so my background is in engineering, and I think complexity is one of the roots of all evil in engineering systems, and unbounded entropy can make or break technical products. And I think Overall, the Ethereum ecosystem has done a relatively good job of being skeptical of adding complexity into the protocol and making sure that it's grown responsibly. That said, to your point, the complexity has grown a lot over the past three years in crypto. Um, and we'll see. Uh, I, I do think it's on a sustainable path moving forward. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was I was looking through your Twitter feed and I think you reposted something. It was a funny joke about, you know, you were talking about account abstraction. And you're like, if you ask anybody on the street, what do they think about crypto? They say, this account needs more abstraction. And <laughs> I thought that was funny. Um, yeah, that was a good one. I think like parallel to the complexity comment though. So complexity is, is tough as an engineer to wrangle. But on the flip side, I think if you look at a lot of the very polished applications, products, user experiences out there, it turns out that to make a very, very, very simple user experience is much more demanding for the engineers on the back end. So on the infra side, generally, like the more complicated and robust and granular the infrastructure level, the more levers you have at a product level to build your ideal flows. And so there's this kind of trade-off between complexity of infrastructure and complexity for users. And right now, there's a lot of complexity for users that makes it more or less untenable for most of the population. And so yeah. It's an acceptable trade-off to add complexity at the infrastructure level in order to address that. Yeah. And um, 
Yeah, we'll get into that. Like, I think account abstraction is, is one of those ways, right? Because what, what that means basically, and I've been talking about this on recent episodes, so hopefully listeners are, are sort of caught up, but it's a, a new way of designing a wallet that is based around a smart contract, right? It's, so it's got a lot more capabilities uh, and it's, it's a lot, I guess, um, a lot more flexible. Is that how you would kind of describe it just real broadly? Yeah, it's flexible. And I think one of the core concepts for me is that it's extensible and that for the past few minutes, we've been talking about how much crypto is evolving, moving quickly. And legacy accounts on Ethereum called EOAs are what's called hard-coded. So they, they can't really change unless you update the Ethereum protocol. And all they do is you know validate your balance and validate your signature and check this thing called a nonce and that's it. But with contract accounts, you now have a system that is programmable, meaning it can meet the market where it is today, but you can also program updates to have it keep up with evolvements in crypto and meet the market where it is tomorrow. So this extensibility to me is key given how fast the whole space is evolving. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. It's, it's an yeah, evolvable um, piece of code. Um, well, let's um, let's go back a little bit first uh, here, and uh, I'm going to guess that you're a native of LA. Is that is that right? I'm actually not. So I moved to the Bay Area from Israel when I was young, and then I grew up mostly in Palo Alto. Okay. Um, And then you went to college in Pomona. I did, yes. Yeah, which is, for people who don't know, that's like Eastern uh, Inland Empire kind of area of uh, Southern California. You know, from a young age, were you always into like engineering topics and, you know, like math and science? Is that your kind of, did you just gravitate to it or how how did you kind of get interested in this stuff? Yeah, totally. I think moving to Palo Alto when I was young was pretty formative there that it was kind of on the bleeding edge of Silicon Valley as it was uh, kind of exploding onto the scene. And I was always exposed to like the latest and greatest of these concepts. Um, And that kind of materialized in a few axes. Like I was taking community college programming courses in high school and we even had a web design courses in middle school. And I was the kind of guy that always jailbroke my iPod touches and like <laughs> hacked out my operating systems to like dual boot Linux and was always kind of hands-on with a lot of these things. So that kind of evolved into just a general passion for entrepreneurship and technology. What do you think it is about that that appealed to you like from such a young age? Was it the the way you could change things, uh, like, you know, or maybe like improve them? Or was it the kind of certainty of technology? Or what what do you think kind of drew you to it? It's a good question. Um, I think for me, it was in large part kind of my creative outlet. Like I was never a painter or a musician, but you can just express creativity in the way that you build design and chip software and kind of build little projects that are just personally satisfying uh, in a way that kind of filled that void for me. Okay. Early on, like, so, okay, you're at Pomona College. Um, tell me about this project you did. Uh, it was called Snakes on a Hyperplane. <laughs> you did your research. Um, Snakes on a Hyperplane was my sophomore year hackathon project I did it with a group of friends. And we built a multiplayer 3D snake game. So you could go to the website, join the game, and you'd be one of many snakes on this cube. And you can control your snake across three axes to avoid crashing into yourself and try to keep collecting uh, the snake food. Uh, if you guys are familiar with Snake the Game, um, and you can keep a, a little high score and compete against your friends. So it was kind of a small, self contained project, but it was a fun just demo of a, a game you can build in 24 hours. And was um, Samuel L. Jackson involved at all in the game? 
Was he? No, but he, he, I'm he sure we quoted him a lot Jackson. in our uh, in our presentation <laughs> speech. Okay, but then it sounds like kind of that game Slither. Is that sort of what you were talking about? Do you know that game? Uh, I believe so. I, I've yeah. I know it is Snake. I think, but okay. yeah, there's a lot of permutations in the game. Okay. Um. What? Uh, so, what was it like out of Pomona? Did you did you like that atmosphere? Um. What What was that sort of college experience like for you? I loved it. Um. There were a few things that I really liked. One is Pomona is actually not what you would call pre-professional. So it's not necessarily geared at getting you to the workplace more than it is geared at getting you to grad school. And I think the second order focus of that is that it's slightly more academically oriented. And a lot of the classes were abstract. So there's like a difference between what I would say is programming, computer science, and computer and software engineering. Software engineering is what I do now more often of, hey, how do I build real live systems? Um, But the focus of most of the classes took at Pomona were more theoretical than that. It's like, what are the limits of what you can and can't do with computing? Like, how do you formalize programming languages? What is the supporting math for all of this? Um, and I think my biggest takeaway was just like being able to reason comfortably with abstract topics, which now translates well, now that I'm a trained engineer for multiple years in the workplace, I'm still comfortable in reasoning around big ambiguous problems and then breaking them down into more concrete subproblems. Oh, so that yeah. was one thing. And really the other thing too is Pomona is a liberal arts college. And so uh, while I was a STEM major, I ended up taking a lot of humanities classes, especially around philosophy. And I think similar to abstract thinking, I think it honed that from a qualitative edge, but also really drilled into me good writing practices, which now uh, I think in a fast moving environment are critical and being able to just articulate and communicate ideas distinctly. Yeah. Do you have a favorite philosopher? I don't really. Um, I, I recently reread, she's not really a philosopher. She's more of a, actually a journalist, but Hannah Arendt, uh, mm-hmm. I thought. And uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem uh, was a great book. Would recommend. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of my favorites is George Barclay. Uh, he's actually who Berkeley is named after. We, pr- we mispronounce it. Um, he's an English philosopher. And uh, he basically argued that there's no way to, to prove anything that we're actually here. Like, it's just, mm. um, and, you know, so it's kind of one of those for a college sophomore, you know, that was like, yeah, I'm going to wrap my head Whoa. around that. <laughs> yeah. Is that like the the only thing you really know is about your own consciousness guy? Yeah. I mean, Descartes is really known for more of that, but like Barclay had, uh, he, he wrote a whole book on it and, and it was, um, you know, basically just, yeah, yeah, there's, there's no way that we can prove that any of this is real. Um, so, um, <laughs> so I stick uh, with STEM. It's very <laughs> fungible. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then, uh, so, so not soon after that, uh, Pomona, you started working for Google and I noticed, um, you're working down here in LA for them. Yep. That's right. So while an undergrad, I actually interned with them three times and, uh, got to experience a few different teams and engineering practices and cities. I was in Mountain View, New York and Tokyo. And I always kind of appreciated the flexibility of location they offered. And I knew I wanted to stick around LA after graduating just for, Honestly, for me, it was like the weather and the proximity to the beach and the ability to be outdoors a lot. Mm-hmm. And so joined Google in Venice and worked there for a few years on the Google Drive team. Yeah. All right. So just a quick side note. What's the what's the best burger in Los Angeles? That's a good question. I'm not a huge burger guy. So I'm not the best person to ask, but uh, there was a good dive bar in Venice called Hinano's. It's not a good uh, burger, but it's an amazing dive bar. 
and just oh, yeah, like I love exactly the ambiance you want from it. Yeah. I love that place. Yeah. I just took my boys there the other day. Uh, we had to eat outside, of course, because they couldn't go in. But um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's got sawdust on the floor. Yeah. It's filthy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, all right. So I noticed it was interesting. It seemed like you kind of, so you talked about Google. Um, it seemed like you had a very similar role there with what you're doing at Alchemy, which was a different type of system, but you were just basically working on scaling like the drive system, the, the Google drive and, and other, um, attributes that, that feed into the drive system. Right. And that sounds like kind of Alchemy asks, is asking you to do a very similar thing. Um, Yes and no. I think my biggest takeaway from that experience at Google was learning how to design systems for over a billion monthly active users and then build them from the ground up, um, which kind of shows you what excellence at scale looks like and kind of gives you a good North Star to evaluate certain design decisions to make sure that they support you for what you need from a product perspective now, but can extend as your product grows. and I think that really is a, one of the crux of the problems being solved on blockchains today is we have what's called a Byzantine-resistant distributed system. And right now, it can probably handle on the order of maybe hundreds of thousands or low millions of users. And if we want to make this planet scale, what design decisions need to happen in order to facilitate that kind of scalability? Yeah, can you um, maybe expand on the Byzantine part of that equation? Because I, I hear that a lot, but I, I think it's an interesting thing, but I, I would love it. For listeners, if yeah. you could try to just break that down a little bit. For sure. I actually learned this piece of trivia this week, but it comes from when in the Byzantine Empire, um, there were sentry towers along the borders and they had they signaled to each other with flames. And so if you saw a flame, uh, it's kind of a warning that something's happening and these towers could communicate with one another with these flames. And the idea of Byzantine resistance is like, well, what if a tower gets taken over by a hostile like how tolerant are we to multiple of these towers being enemy operated and still consider our borders secure? And in the same way, uh, Byzantine resistant now in computer systems means, hey, given this distributed systems, like what pieces uh, can be controlled by external or even hostile adversaries and our system still performs correctly, um, which is effectively what you want a blockchain to be. So, for example, in Ethereum, as long as a sufficient number of participants are behaving honestly, the system is behaving honestly, and that means it's tolerant to, you know, a malicious attacker coming in, running a bunch of validators and trying to take over control of the Ethereum blockchain. Yeah, yeah, like you just said, it's 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 about um, whether to trust somebody, right, or not. Is, is it yeah, little... it's about like a, it's Byzantine resistance is the property of a system to behave correctly in the face of uh, hostile adversaries operating parts of it. So it's actually like a lack of trust assumption. Can yeah. we make sure this is still trustless? And, and that's what you're saying to connect that to the larger Ethereum ecosystem. Um, that type of system is hard to scale. Am I connecting those correctly? Yeah. So like at Google, for example, Google operated every piece of infrastructure on the Google Drive system. Right. And so we didn't really have to have design decisions that said, okay, well, like, what if some of these servers got taken over by like a f- hostile adversary? That's just yeah, not a design consideration not an, to make. Not an issue because it's centralized, right? And you're in control exactly. of everything, right? But on Ethereum, that's not an assumption you can make, and that has pretty direct trade-offs with how you scale systems today. Yeah, 
that just comes with the nature of a blockchain system, correct? Like you can't really get around that. Yeah, that's the right. trustless nature of a blockchain is anyone right. can participate, including hostile adversity, uh, adversaries. But it, but it seems to me like just, you know, in big picture stuff here, I, I don't think we've had a problem with that. Have, have we in like major blockchains? I know like, for instance, uh, Ethereum Classic has been taken over several times. So, you know, but I wouldn't consider that a major chain. But like the big ones, it, has that ever really been an issue? Uh, not in terms of like, any sort of uh, anyone trying to take over the chain as far as I know. And I think a big reason for that is just the system has scaled from a security perspective to the point to the cost of doing that is prohibitive for most all actors. Yeah. And is another part of that, that um, on Ethereum, at least what are there seven different um, language or what do you call them? Um, No, to client implementations. Yeah. The the different clients, aren't there something like seven? Um, I think that's part of it. It's a slightly different security model that would be called kind of a supply chain attack, where if someone was able to sneak in some risky code to one of the clients, would that have the ability to take over or take down Ethereum? And that's actually a metric that's pretty closely tracked by the Ethereum community is like, what's the distribution of client implementations being run and trying to avoid any one client implementation being dominant to the point that any issue with it could affect Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a perfectly uniform distribution. Like there are still still much more popular clients than others, but it right. is a component of Ethereum's resilience to these types of right. attacks. And I remember being amazed that um, during the merge that all of those different clients were just seamlessly moved over. And it's just like, God, that was so complicated, yeah. but it was uh, done so expertly. And that was really Yeah, amazing. absolutely. Tip of the hat to the whole Ethereum foundation uh, and the core teams involved in engineering that. It was a yeah. really impressive piece of engineering. Are you a part of the ETH core devs team? Uh, I'm not, no. Um, We build off of their work and they really do drive a lot of the foundational work in the ecosystem. So again, would you be allowed to to do that? Or are you like Alchemy's guy and you did Alchemy just wants you to work for them? We're allowed to do that. Um, We're actually not on like the core node client limitations, but we're working with the Ethereum Foundation and just the broader EVM community more closely on a lot of what we're doing around account abstraction. So we actually uh, open-sourced, not a node client, but you could think of it like a meta-node client called a bundler that facilitates account abstraction. And that's based off a spec from the Ethereum Foundation. And we actually published our own, what's called uh, EIP or ERC, which is like uh, Ethereum improvement proposal or Ethereum request for change mm-hmm. that like defines a standard for certain operations in account abstraction. We've been working with the EF on that and we had our first like all core devs uh, community call this week for that topic. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, maybe we could kind of jump into that for, for a second here um, and get a little bit more into account abstraction. Um, not a great name. Uh, I wish, the, I've been saying this a lot lately, I wish that like Ethereum or the blockchain quote unquote had a PR agency where they could kind of go through and do some branding uh, (laughs) upgrades. But like we were talking about before, the account abstraction is, uh, it it gives a a lot more flexibility. uh, And like you said, it's it's, um, something that can evolve as the technology improves. But um, there's another layer to it right there that, and tell me if I have this right, it sounds like the hope here is that uh, this will make it, like, so I guess we have to back up one sec. Like the the current wallets, like you were talking about the hardwired, I guess, kind of wallet system is 
is clunky and it's scary. And, you know, if you screw up, you know, things can get really bad. So I think that's pretty widely accepted as a, as a big barrier to entry for a lot of folks to get into crypto. But then account abstraction sounds to me like it's something where the hope is that people will start using um, more like an app on your phone as a wallet. Um, and you won't even necessarily know the blockchain mechanics that are behind the scenes. Am I describing that correctly? Um, I think that's accurate. I think my personal litmus test here is, do I see my mom using this application? And mm. for pretty much most all crypto applications now, the answer is no. Like I'll gladly push her to something like Coinbase, which is centralized and can provide a secure UX, but is not self-sovereign. But I wouldn't necessarily ask her to go set up a MetaMask and then try to swap her assets on Uniswap. I think that's just generally not the kind of user experience that she's expecting to have on the internet right now. And where this is going is I think Right now, there's this distinction between crypto companies and companies. And you saw this with the internet too. 30 years ago, there were you know internet companies and regular companies. But now every company is an internet company. You just don't really call it that. But pretty much all companies provide some value to their users on internet rails. Mm-hmm. And the idea here is how do we build towards a system where all companies become crypto companies and you don't actually need to know that they're powered by crypto or even understand what crypto is under the hood. And you're not really exposed to any of the nuances of crypto. But you're getting value as an end user by some application that is built on crypto rails. And so moving t- that, towards that kind of future where the actual infrastructure itself is entirely abstracted away from the end user. Yeah. And, and so can you paint a picture for me? Like how would that work? Um, is it like an app, more like an app interface, like I was saying, or, or something that yeah. your mom so would feel our, comfortable using? Yeah. Our core thesis right now is, you have this concept of a wallet in crypto and it like pops up every time you want to take a crypto action and gives you this hex string that you have to kind of sign. And like you said, there's security implications and recovery implications and all these things. And we want to build like a cohesive platform that makes this wallet feel invisible. And so value should accrue to the application level. Application developers should be able to provide value to their end users with their applications. And the uh, action of like authenticating with a crypto-based identity and transacting on internet rails using crypto infrastructure should be available but invisible to the end user. So it could feel like, hey, I'm signing in with my fingerprint or I'm sending my family overseas money or any number of actions like here's my you know government-issued driver's license as a decentralized identifier, whatever it may be. Um, that's all available to them in a secure manner, in a recoverable manner, in a way that like prevents malicious users from being able to take over their account or their assets and still in a self-sovereign manner. And so kind of solving that triangle is, is difficult. And the through line there is making the overall experience of the wallet invisible. Yeah, yeah. Um, and is, is that like, I notice. I, I don't know if it's um, alchemy or just a general sort of thing, but I, I keep hearing people say that we're going to do this for the next billion or to bring on board, to onboard the next billion crypto users. Um, And I guess I would say, well, I'd be happy with like 10 million right now (laughs) because I think in terms of active users, it's, it's not, I don't think it's above three or so, maybe 4 million. Yeah. It's certainly quite low. It's not going to be the flip of a switch. I think for truly to get a billion people on chain, there's a lot of threads that kind of have to converge in parallel. There's obviously the UX component of it, of like how do we make these experiences easier to use for the masses. There are components that are less solved, like privacy on chain, and how do you have partial privacy so that you can't really see exactly what I bought on Amazon. Um, There's the scaling component that we talked about a little bit earlier, but how do we 
scale the system to truly handle the volume of a billion daily active users. Um, and then there's like a lot of second order problems that start arising when you peel off these top level problems too. Mm-hmm. What, um, what do you make of the market right now? Like in, in terms of, you know, enthusiasm and, um, I guess I'm, I'm more, I'm more interested in what you think about like public sentiment about blockchain, um, after FTX, you know, about a year ago blew up and then we just had the trial and the guilty verdict. Um, it's all been, you know, pretty bruising. Um, how are you getting through that? And, and where do you think things stand in terms of more um, concrete, you know, progress that you're seeing or or lack thereof? Uh, great question. Definitely made for some less fun Thanksgiving dinner conversations last year. <laughs> uh, I guess I can expect to run back this year, given the the, the verdicts. But um, I think on one hand, it definitely set back public perception meaningfully by several years in terms of how people perceive crypto and Web3, which is unfortunate. On the other hand, I think combined with the like, deflation of the last bull market, um, a lot of the less savvy or uh, moral actors have left the space. Uh, I think like all technology bubbles, there was like all new technologies, there was a bubble here. And the difference was this bubble was immediately hyperliquid, which just set a lot of bad incentives for a lot of folks. But now that a lot of that's gone, uh, the core developers in the space are much higher signal, building on real roadmaps and are anchored on long timelines for making this a viable technology to the point that, you know, uh, conditions and sentiment on a year over year basis are not huge in terms of impacting that outlook. Yeah. Do you you think like account abstraction, I've, I've had it described to me by other people as, as one of like a few building blocks. Um, there's, there's multi-party compute is another one. And there's a few others that, uh, that have been described to me as like, these are great foundational pieces of technology that we now have and that are out there in the open so that, um, and then to build on top of them is what's really going to get exciting. Do you share that sort of view? Yeah, hundred percent. There's been developments of really powerful primitives over the years. And I think uh, even beyond like blockchains themselves, a lot of this just promotes end user ownership of private keys, which I think is really valuable. Like if you look 10 years in the past, there were the cypherfunks who had their like private public PGP cares, PGP key pairs uh, listed on their websites. And that was like roughly it in the extent of who owned a private key. But there's a lot of advantages in just like distributing this type of cryptography around like attestations and like uh, being able to land things like zero knowledge proofs that can unlock things outside of blockchain systems too. Um, so generally excited about those kinds of developments. Yeah, and I I was just writing about this today um, for our newsletter, but you know the Simpsons just did a, an episode on NFTs, and I think oh boy, you know, yeah, it's not a whole episode. It was the Treehouse of, of Horrors, so it was like you know about <laughs> a five minute where. Bart gets, um, he gets uh, minted as an NFT by Homer by accident, and he's now on chain. So Marge has to go on into the blockchain and rescue Bart. Um, but so yeah, they take some digs at it, of course. Um, and, uh, but I also thought that's kind of cool. You know, it's like, it feels like acceptance, you know, where it's something to be made worth, or it's worth making fun of, which I don't know, to me, just kind of, I took that as a positive thing. Um, and, I was, I was also wondering um, if you, you know, 
uh, I think Solana just had its annual conference breakpoint. Um, and are, are you in this future we're talking about, do, do you think there's a whole bunch of different interchains that are, that are linked together or has Ethereum just become the one thing or what, what do you think is going to work uh, or how that's going to all work out? Uh, it's a great question. I don't really think we'll ever be in a state where there's like one virtual machine that rules them all. Um, and like, for example, Ethereum and Solana make very distinct trade-offs and depending on what you need, you might select either side of that trade-off. Um, pretty much everything in engineering is just a series of trade-offs. There's no free lunches. And it ends up what you need as an application developer from these trade-offs. Um, but my focus, especially on account abstraction, has been for the Ethereum virtual machine. So I can't speak as intelligently now about Solana, but there are a lot of really cool developments going on in the ecosystem as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess I I come down on the, I think there are going to be many different chains and, and I think they'll have their own sort of, I think they'll grow into their own sort of niche um, uses. But I mean, Solana's already doing that with the, its speed um, and relative cheapness um, to Ethereum. Um, did, I guess we, so we mentioned the the merge and I thought that that, you know, was such an amazing technological accomplishment, but the market didn't seem to really uh, see it that way. And and it kind of threw me off. Did, do you remember like what you felt when you saw like Ethereum kind of tank after uh, the merge was so successful? Um, honestly, I'm self-proclaimed to be the worst trader on the planet. And as a corollary of that, I pretty much never look at the price movement of crypto. I think yeah. it's like uh, not the best signal on how things are going. And instead like to look a little bit more around like what customers of Alchemies are building and where we think the space might be going. So uh, no reaction either way. I'm, I'm in it for the long haul. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of that, like what you must be seeing a lot of cool stuff that's in development. Are there, are you getting excited about any areas that you think, you know, are nascent and like maybe could, you know, kind of get really big um, when the market starts turning around? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, there's a lot of segments that excite me. I think we're seeing Web2, what we call Web2, start heating up again with a lot more interest across various different things like uh, account abstraction being one of them, both to facilitate this UX, but also to have what I like to call an internet-native digital identity, um, which I think can be a really powerful primitive for things like shared context and authentication and authorization. Um, we're seeing... Um, gaming there's a lot of conversations around web3 based games and having things fully interoperable like in-game micropayments um it's funny there's like a few through lines of like past experiences that i see very concentrated in crypto one of them is having played runescape as a kid which i am guilty of and <laughs> you get totally exposed to this like digital game in-game assets and they had not NFTs, but like, you know, limited edition drops that became worth a lot. And then there were this whole economy that they, like facilitated around digital assets and RuneScape Gold and various items you can purchase with it. Yeah. Um, and I think having that all on chain interoperable with other games is super powerful. So excited yeah, to see that too. That's what's so fascinating is because RuneScape, that was, it was all in that one world, right? You couldn't take that anywhere else. It's sort of like Fortnite, like, um, yeah. you know, same, same yeah. things or Roblox with their Robux. Yeah. I so, think that's one of the abstract value props of crypto in general is like you get this software composability, um, which we, as we've seen with open source leads to kind of exponential outcomes because the building blocks just compound and 
you get this compound interest on the types of things you can build with software. Yeah. I've been trying to tell people lately, I think, you know, everybody asks about the killer app uh, and I think it's already here. I think it's the, just payments, you know, um, I was looking at what, you know, like the Bank of England and regulators in Hong Kong, they're all talking about stable coins and regulating them and integrating them into their payment systems. And um, I just had to look this up today, but in 2021, the amount of revenue from the global payment network like industry was $2.1 trillion. And it's like, <laughs> I was like, wow, that's, that's amazing that, you know, like crypto based stable coins are going to make that trillion dollar market a lot more efficient and a lot more accurate and, and, you know, uh, less uh, mistakes and less things that, that go wrong. And I just, I think that's really amazing. And I think a lot of people aren't thinking about it in that way. Um, but yeah, I 100% agree with that staggering number. It is like the canonical example of product market fit in crypto right now is stable coins in general. I think it's pretty often overlooked. Um, and I think that actually is like kind of another through line of people that are heavily in crypto now. Uh, one is RuneScape, the other is either like immigrants or just anyone that has exposure to international financial markets and systems. Mm -hmm. Um, you kind of get uh, buffered a bit from the need for things like stable coins when you're living in the US using the world reserve currency day to day and already building on great financial infrastructure like US startups are doing. And crypto really promises to bring that globally, which is really exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the, like, that's the value proposition of, of Ripple, right? And XRP, um, even though I think, you know, I don't think they ever had a chance of unseating the, the world's biggest banks in the correspondent banking market. But the idea of creating these global rails that are, you know, crypto based and, and can transfer value, you know, within minutes and you, you know, right away, whether it's, um, it's a, the transaction failed or succeeded. I mean, that's, that's, that's huge. And, and I think, um, it, I, I'm, I, I think that from, from that, it's going to just kind of trickle out, I think. And then people are going to start getting used to it a little bit more. Um, if, if it's now a digital dollar rather than electronic money, like kind of what we have today. Yeah. Um, Pretty much every time I need to renew my conviction in crypto, I go and try to send a wire to someone and then I'm like, yes, we need this. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, well, no, this has been really fascinating. Thank you so much um, for, for all your insight and sharing your story with me. Um, maybe uh, just tell folks how they can get to know more about you or, or if they want to know more about Alchemy and what you guys are up to, how to find you guys. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Best way to reach me is on X or the platform that used to be on his Twitter, um, at probably Noam. Um, and for Alchemy related stuff, you can check out our website, alchemy.com. We have a learning center for all things account abstraction. So that's alchemy.com slash learn slash account dash abstraction. And you can also kind of see what products we're building in the space and all of our open source software there as well. All right. That's awesome. Yeah. Hey, Noam, thanks again. I really appreciate it. And, and best of luck with everything you guys are doing over at Alchemy. And uh, say hi to Joe and Nikhil for me if you see him. Absolutely will do. Great chatting. Okay. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. <laughs>